Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. So welcome. This is the Church Times podcast. I'm Sarah Merrick, and I'm here today with Matt Rowland Hill, the author of an extraordinary memoir called Original Sins and published by Chateau and Windus. Welcome, Matt, and thank you for being with us. Thank you, Sarah. Now, your publisher describes this book as a story of faith, family, loss, shame and addiction. But ultimately, it's about survival, growing up and learning to live And I wondered if you could just tell us a bit about the book um, and how it came about. Sure. Well, basically, the book, quite simply, is the story of my life. I grew up the son of an evangelical preacher in South Wales. My father was a Baptist minister. And we had a kind of complicated family in certain respects, as everyone does. But as a teenager, I lost my faith in evangelical Christianity and... That led to a period of confusion and doubt, and it was really um, heartbreaking in a way to to lose my faith. And not long afterwards, I fell into um, almost a decade of addiction to uh, Class A drugs, heroin and crack. And really, the book is just the story of that. And then eventually sort of, well, maybe we can get to that later, but sort of trying to find my way forward without religion or drugs. And you talk about starting to write it with a big biro because you've got no laptop, with no real thought of publication. Tell me a bit about the the beginnings. So I started writing it in 2017. Um, I was 33 years old. And when I was 31, I had been lucky enough to go to a wonderful rehab, which had helped me sort of turn my life around. So at the time, I was a couple of years clean from drugs. I was still living as part of that institution because they had this wonderful um, kind of community, a a space there where you could carry on living uh, while you put your life back together. So I was living basically in rehab, more or less in rehab. And I thought to myself, how have I ended up here? You know, um, I looked back at my life and it just seemed like such a strange series of events. And I wanted to figure out what that story meant and, you know... uh, who I was in a way. So I just started writing and I wasn't sure what I was writing. I thought maybe I was writing a novel at first, um, but I wasn't too sure. But yes, I I didn't have a laptop at the time because I'd sold my laptop for heroin a couple of years earlier. I was unemployed. Uh, so I started with a piece of paper and a pen, basically. I did have a laptop by the time I finished, but yeah. So the book emerges, and then I understand it was subject to a kind of eight-way bidding war. Yeah, that well, yes, that came a little later. Um, it took me some time to get going. Um, so it was 2019, it was a couple of years later. I'd written a few chapters. And I had no, I had no idea how the publishing industry worked. I didn't know anything about it. Um, I thought you had to write a whole book and then maybe someone would publish it. But a friend of mine who knew a bit more about it than me said, you might be able to send it to a publisher via an agent and see if you can get what they call an advance. Um, So I did that and um, it was a sort of, yeah, it was an incredible turning point in my life really. And 
in the end, we 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 ended up selling the book to a uh, imprint of Penguin Random House, Chatham Windows, uh, which was which was so exciting and and daunting. Yeah. Well, many congratulations because it is a really powerful book. I'm so glad it's been published. Thank you. Now, writing it is one thing; having it published is another. And I wonder if that's been cathartic. Yeah. Well, it's still in the early days. You know, it was only a. Um, a month or two ago that it was published. Um, has it been cathartic? I think in certain respects, yes. Um, I think writing it was probably cathartic in certain respects too. Although um, I wasn't, I mean, I think writers are different. So I think some writers, they maybe they sit at the page and they weep and, you know, it's a this overwhelming emotional experience. I wasn't really like that. You know, I was thinking very hard about the sort of technical aspects of writing. How do you draw a scene? How do you make something funny? You know, how do you make a vivid character? So it wasn't like writing a diary in that sense for me. But then after I'd finished writing it, I did sit back and look at all the material. And, you know, the, the book describes all of these kind of you know some some really painful and dark moments from my life as well as as well as some comic and um bizarre moments and i think i did feel that having written it had given me some peace about that material yeah thinking of the um of the some kind of the horror of it um i'm going to, you're going to read a bit later but if we could just start with the um the prologue that is really dramatic. It's vivid, it's electrifying, mm. and it's it's pretty horrific, isn't it? Um, can you give us a picture of what what you're describing there and also why you started with that scene? Yeah. So the book starts on a, as you say, this sort of dramatic, quite dark, um, difficult moment where I was at the funeral of a friend, someone who I hadn't seen for some years, but who I'd once been close to, who had died as a result of an overdose of the the same drugs that I was addicted to. Now, I really wanted to go to that funeral and kind of, you know, honor him because he was my friend. But I was so addicted to heroin and crack at the time that the only way that I was going to be able to make it was by going there and taking those drugs. And it created this kind of farcical and desperate scene, really, where I was locked in a church toilet, injecting myself with heroin and crack. And, you know, I describe in that prologue how I nearly overdosed that day. And it was, it was terrible. But the, the, the scene is also kind of a homecoming for me because I had spent a long time away from church. And, you know, at that point in my life, I was 30 years old, and I was I, I was an atheist, and, but I was kind of like an angry, I was a very angry atheist. I was kind of a Richard Dawkins-style atheist. And I had stayed away from churches for a long time, because the way that I saw it was that all the trouble had started with religion, and I wanted nothing to do with it. But here I was, back in a church, face to face with addiction and its darkest consequences, because, you know, it really could have been me in that coffin. And 
on that day, you know, I kind of had this emotional experience where I was remind where, where so much from my past was stirred up. It happened that the funeral was in Wales, which is where I come from originally. I heard the Welsh language for the first time in a long time, and it kind of caused some sort of emotional reckoning inside me, which I sort of half understood at the time and didn't really properly understand until later. But yeah, it's I mean, the reason that I started the book there was just that it kind of brought together all of these different themes from my life, really. Um, addiction, faith, and family. I mean, I hope that the prologue, as, as well as being dark and difficult to read, is also entertaining and funny. And that's a kind of a, a difficult line to try and tread, because writing about these horrific sort of subjects with some humor and with an eye for entertaining the reader is it is is not not always easy but i I hope i i I pulled it very much i think you do it is it's extraordinary that it should be funny because it is also horrific but it is it's it's kind of you're very aware you paint this very vivid picture of the of the irony you know you know your half of you knows what's going on Mm. um at the time even in the moment i kind of saw the irony of what was happening and i had this sort of gallows humor about it all yeah so there's a real self awareness and I mean that's one of the things that's so compelling about the book but I would say that you are pretty unsparing of yourself Mm. um, in the book yeah I think also quite I mean you're quite unsparing about your parents you talk about what was clearly a I I don't know if it's fair to say a what seems like a quite a toxic relationship Um, and and again you do that with with kind of you know humor as well as pain so can you tell us something about the car journey? Because that is, you know, that is sort of, yeah, it's very, very vivid. And again, it's sort of horrific and funny all at once. Mm. So after that, uh, the beginning of the book, the prologue that we just spoke about, it, the book goes back in time and it's, it goes to my childhood. And then it becomes a kind of chronological story of my life, basically. And the scene that I describe to kind of summarize my childhood or to stand for my childhood in the book is this car journey that is just one of the most vivid memories of my childhood. Not because it was so extraordinary. In some ways, it was a very ordinary kind of memory. And I think we all have memories a bit like this, or a lot of people tell me that they do. These car journeys that we had with our families, you know, I, this was about 1990 or or the, the very early 90s. We weren't especially well off, so we weren't flying uh, for foreign holidays. We were on the way to Guernsey, which seemed about as exotic as anywhere I could imagine in the world at that point in my life. But it was a long car journey. And there I was with my three siblings and my parents, and we were stuck in this car for a long, long time. You're trapped, aren't you, in a car? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why these journeys are so memorable for people, because all of your family dynamics are there in that car. There's no escape. And in a way, I feel like, you know, we never really leave that car as we grow older. Um, the, the, the car journeys that we had with our families as kids are almost like an, an image for everything that we ride around with for the rest of our lives. That particular journey, you know, my parents got into an argument over something kind of trivial. My parents did argue quite a lot and... They got into an argument about a Cindy Lauper song that came on the radio, and then it all sort of turned into, it turned into quite an upsetting scene. And they were kind of weaponizing scripture and flinging it back and forth because 
as I said before, my, my father was a preacher in an evangelical church. My mom was a devout evangelical Christian herself. And they were kind of using Bible verses to try and get one over on the other and to win this argument. And it just stuck in my mind, I suppose, uh, uh, partly because it was a very ordinary and a very representative moment from my childhood. And in another way, because it was just so strange <laughs> and it's, it's never quite left me. Yes. And the other thing, of course, about a car journey is is the sort of limited eye contact. So the parents, you know, they're at the front and maybe one can turn around, but the, there's never the full attention. Mm. And I think that can be, can let all sorts of things fly sometimes for, for good or ill. So you've put this very personal story in the public domain and people now reading this and thinking, oh my goodness, you know, did this, you know, what was that like? Yes. Um, the obvious question, Matt, is how have your family responded to what, have they have they read it? Yes, uh, my my parents, um, my sisters. I, I I I'm not very close to my sisters still, so I don't know if they've read it. They've been kind enough to give me their approval and to allow me to tell the story in my own way, and I'm grateful for that. My parents have read it, and um, they, you know, I'm I'm really grateful to them that they allowed me to. To, to tell the story from from my own point of view and to try and tell the story truthfully. I mean, you said before that I was unsparing of myself and, and somewhat of them as well. I think that's true. I mean, I didn't want to write a book that was um, unkind about anybody. I thought it was really important that I was unsparing of myself. I thought that was the most important thing to be honest about my own flaws, my own mistakes, weaknesses. And, you know, I, I have many and they're all there in the book. I thought the story probably wouldn't make sense unless I showed some of the complications of the family that I came from. My parents, you know, I, 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 I hope that anyone who reads the book would come away thinking that my parents are not bad people. They were not un loving they wanted to do their best like all parents do and i love my parents very much too it's just that family's a very complicated yeah. thing isn't it and um in answer to your question yeah i mean uh, i think my parents have mixed feelings about the book um i think they're proud of me for having published it um i think it's always going to be difficult for any family to sort of see its dirty linen aired in public and it's we're kind of working on it basically and do they i mean do they recognize themselves in your description do they or do they just think that's just matt's view i mean i just wonder because mm. in any family we have different narratives mm. i have different narratives from my siblings of things about my upbringing mm. i'm just wondering if your parents recognize it it's a good question um I think they do to a very large extent. Um, my mum talks about how I kind of captured the way that she speaks perfectly and now almost kind of can't say some of her usual catchphrases <laughs> without recognising the character in the book. So she obviously recognises herself to a very large extent. So the Tesco I... club card points, for example, which oh, is a big feature in her life. But, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, um, my my mum loved two things especially, uh, Jesus and special offers, um, which is something I mentioned in the book. And uh, 
she still feels just as passionate about both of those things. Yeah. Yes. So I don't think she would deny that. <laughs> um, you know, everyone's got their own story, don't they? I didn't think when I was writing this book that I was writing the Gospel of St. Matthew. I think it's very clearly a subjective account of my experience of being in that family. I have no doubt whatsoever that if my parents wrote their account, or if my siblings wrote their account, it would look completely different. And maybe if I'd written this account at a different time in my life, it would have looked different. You know, um, that's one of the things that you're grappling with when you're writing memoir, the, you know, the kind of the intractable subjectivity of experience. So yeah, we've all got our own narratives. And this is just what this this is my version. Not, it doesn't stand for anybody else. Yes, thank you. Um, now, obviously, a huge part of the book is this devastating loss of faith um, as a teenager. And, and one can imagine how that feels that everything, or, you know, suddenly or, you know, everything, the ground collapses beneath your feet. And I think you're going to read us just a little passage from the book about, about that. Um, so if you'd like to read that, that would be lovely. Yes, uh, so this is just a short section from... Uh, so at this point, I'm 18 years old. And it kind of comes at the, at the end of a long period where I've been questioning my faith. So, back at school, keeping my doubts behind a locked door in my mind was increasingly consuming all my strength. As my final year wore on, I was more and more exhausted. Could it really be true that everything I'd ever believed and the whole moral worldview that went with it was a lie? If I couldn't trust a word my parents said, what could I be sure of? The terms of Pascal's wager no longer looked so appealing to me. Sure, if all your heavenly bananas lined up, you'd hit the eternal jackpot. But if they didn't, and you spent all your days crossing your fingers, hoping to cash out at the exit by handing over the crumpled ticket of belief, well, in the lost column would go everything, including your single chance to create a life based on freedom, courage, dignity, intellectual honesty. After all, what would it profit you if, in attempting to win your soul, you lost the whole world? As my A-level exams approached, I finally discontinued my morning Bible study. I realised that at some point I'd stopped performing this ritual for spiritual instruction and was instead seeking confirmation of my doubts. The first morning after making my decision, I just sat at my desk in an angry sulk, not knowing what to do with myself. I solved the problem by going to the library that afternoon and borrowing a small pile of paperbacks. For the rest of my time at school, I began each day with a chapter or two from On the Road or The Belger. I read these books with the same avidity, the same existential hunger that I'd once brought to scripture. I'd been raised to believe the purpose of literature was to reveal the hidden truths of life, so now I simply transferred my reverence from St. Mark to Kerouac, St. Paul to Plath. Thank you. So this is you at 18. Mm. Where do you stand on religious faith today? 
Um, well, I've been on a bit of a journey with it. Um, so shortly after the, the the moment that I'm describing there, I had my big kind of moment of reckoning where I, I actually one day stood in front of a mirror and I said out loud the words, I am not a Christian. And I, when I said it, I almost flinched thinking that God might strike me down with a thunderbolt. You know, I had such a, I had been, I'd been raised with this incredibly literalistic, incredibly kind of orthodox and strict idea of what faith meant. So when I lost that faith, it felt as though because I'd been raised as a fundamentalist believer, the only option I had was to become a fundamentalist unbeliever. I think this is a kind of function or an effect of that style of religion. It almost gives you two options, complete surrender and obedience, um, adherence, or complete rejection. And I chose complete rejection for many years. And I was spiritually and emotionally and psychologically lost. And, you know, it wasn't that long afterwards that I became a heroin addict. Um, and those those events must be connected. For all, all through my 20s, and I'm 38 now, um, all through my 20s, I was, as I said before, quite an angry fundamentalist, you might even say evangelical, non-Christian. I felt like religion was just basically mental illness. I thought religious people, I mean, you know, the irony was I was mentally ill at the time. <laughs> um, and that period ended up with me going to a psychiatric unit. So, you know, who was I to say what mental illness was and wasn't? But um, the great irony in the end was even though I felt that all my troubles had started with had started with religion getting better involved becoming involved with various other kinds of religion so I went to as I said before I was lucky enough to go to a, a wonderful rehab a free charity rehab I didn't pay a penny for all the time I was there and I was there for years in the end if you include the the different phases that they had and um they were, they were Christians. Um, they had a different style of Christianity to my parents, but they felt that they were helping me because they were expressing God's love. And that just blew my mind. You know, I had no idea that there was that style of religion and that style of Christianity. You know, I'd hear the word Jesus and it would make me flinch. But gradually I kind of came to see that there was a different way of being religious or being spiritual and that it didn't necessarily have to be all about do you believe the right things? Do you believe a checklist of A, B, C, D? You know, instead it was about how you acted, how you were with other people and maybe your inner life. So I, you know, that, that, that was a kind of revolution in my thinking. Did I then become the prodigal son? Did I come back to Christianity in the end? It would have made a very neat story if I had. <laughs> Actually, n not quite. So now I wouldn't say, that, I wouldn't say that I'm a Christian. I don't mind thinking of myself as a bit spiritual sometimes. 
I feel agnostic about a lot of questions around faith and spirituality, but I've got a respect and a, even a reverence for a certain kind of spirituality, and I wish I could emulate it more myself. So I, I'm not sure if that's the clearest answer to your question. I think it's a very honest answer. And, and would it be right, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that you no longer perhaps view a Christian upbringing as necessarily toxic? It doesn't have to be. Oh, yeah, a absolutely. absolutely. I would say that a fundamentalist upbringing in any form of faith, whether it's Christian or some other, is likely to present some difficulties. Um, an upbringing where you're taught that homosexuality is wrong, where you're taught that your way of viewing the world is the only way and where everybody who doesn't believe it is going to go to hell, that's going to be a difficult start in the, in the world for anybody. But yeah, I mean... The, the people who helped me in rehab, who absolutely call themselves Christians and who spoke about Jesus, um, were some of the most loving, kind, compassionate and insightful people I've ever met. You've written about the lasting influence of the Bible on you as a writer. I wonder, I think that's very interesting. Would you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so when I sat down to write the book, I don't think I'd really read the Bible since I was 18. And yet, as I was writing, all of these different phrases from the Bible just started coming out. Even when I described walking away from my faith, you know, the phrase that came to me was, um, you know, I, uh, I shook the dust off, off my feet and I didn't look back, which of course is a phrase from the New Testament, from the Gospels. So I think if I, I'm thinking the article I read, to begin with, you, you were sort of rather horrified. You didn't want to have the Bible as one of your influences. But um, would it be right to say that you've sort of swung back to see that it just, you know, it is actually, it provides you poetry, it provides you, you know, ways of thinking about, about your written word? Yes, absolutely. I mean, more than that, it's just formed me as a person. It's completely inextricably bound up with who I am and how I see the world. Um, I think that my writing, even so that, so there are bits where I'm kind of quoting the Bible. Sometimes it's a kind of subtle illusion that people who are familiar with the Bible will, will, will pick up, will yes. pick up. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a more kind of conscious thing. Like in the passage that I read earlier, I invert some of Jesus's words to turn them into an argument for atheism, which was how I saw the yes. world then. But I think even more deeply than that, maybe there's something about the kind of rhythms or the tone of my writing that owes something to the Bible. I, I feel like I hear it. Yes. Um, there's something in the cadences, isn't there? There. I, I think so. I, I think if you compared my writing to another contemporary writer, I don't know, like somebody who, like Sally Rooney, for instance, mm -hmm. I think that the cadences and the rhythms in my writing, for better or worse, are, are a bit different. And I, I would put that down to, I put a lot of it down to my um, upbringing with the Bible. 
the writer Sarah Perry, I don't know if you've read her novels, she talks about this. She had a much happier experience, I think, growing up in, in quite a fundamentalist household. Mm. And she said it's as if she was born in the 19th century because she grew up on, you know, sort of, I think, Victorian novels, but also um, Old English um, in the Bible. And it's absolutely fundamental to the way she thinks about the world, she says, and as a writer. And I detect some of the same influences there. Yeah, I mean, or even earlier than the 19th century, you know, I mean, we, we had various different Bibles at home, but the King James Bible yes. was revered. That's the 17th century text. And, you know, the hymns that we sang, Charles Wesley, you know, that 18th century stuff. So when I went to university later to study English literature and we were reading Shakespeare, the these and the thous and the syntax of Elizabethan poetry, restoration writing, you know, None of that felt alien to me at all. That was just my bread and butter, um, my mother's milk, if you like. So, yes, it was. It, I mean, you know, we had the uh, the Pilgrim's Progress was like a bedtime story for us yeah. when we were growing up. Yes. And the irony is that when people these days do go to study English at university, they're often, you know, I've, I've heard this before, my own daughter, when she went to study English, was told, well, you must, you know, on the reading list before starting at Cambridge, it included the Bible because mm. not enough people knew it mm. um, and it informed so much of English literature. But of course, you were steeped in it, even if you didn't want to be. I was. And, you know, it took me a while to give my parents credit for the kind of literariness of my upbringing, because I kind of felt like we'd been brought up in a home without books. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that was when I went to university. I looked around at the people that I was studying with and they'd all gone to these kind of, they all seem to have grown up in these very sort of posh and cultured homes where they were reading Jane Austen from the age of eight or Dickens from the age of 11. And I envied them and I thought, oh, I, why didn't I get to grow up in a home full of, of literature? And then I realized I had, I'd had an intensely literary upbringing. And it wasn't just the familiarity with the 17th century or 18th century texts or whatever. It was more than that. It was the idea that the answers to the most important questions in life could be found in a book in the 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 written printed the printed words on a page and i think that that's a kind of i mean to me that's the most natural idea in the world you know when i pick up a book still and you know ordinarily now it'll be a novel or maybe poetry i still have this feeling that here i am having potentially having an encounter with the most spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically important things there are. I don't think that most people feel like that. And I'm, I'm glad that I do. And I put that down to the upbringing that I had, and I'm grateful for that. Yes. There's, at the end of the book, there's no sense of triumph. It's very clear as the reader that, that the kind of recovery is ongoing um, and difficult and hard. And I just wonder, how are you now? Are you well? I'm, I'm doing. I'm doing really well, thank you. Yeah, it's been, you know, it's been some time since I've struggled with addiction to hard drugs, but you know, I mean, the thing about books about addiction is that they usually end on this kind of thumping note of redemption, and. I didn't want to write mine in that way. I mean, redemption is quite a kind of Christian idea anyway, which I wanted to sort of think about. I mean, I, I, I don't reject it, but I wanted to just 
use my book to think about that idea. You know, whether we see ourselves as having redeemed our past sort of depends a little bit on where you place the full stop in your story, right? Tomorrow might change your outlook altogether. And I think that when it comes to recovery from addiction or any psychological difficulty, mental illness or or, or just difficulties in life, when it comes to recovery from anything at all, the very best that you can hope for is to be liberated into the ordinary human condition. And the ordinary human condition is quite hard. You know, there are ups and downs. So I'm not sure if I believe that at least on this earth, there is such a thing as absolute redemption. And I kind of wanted the book to reflect that. Um, And, you know, my life has reflected that too. Um, You know, while I was writing the book, after a long, long period away from drugs, um, I had a relapse. And I had to kind of find a way of folding that into the story. And, you know, it's it's been an ongoing education in how difficult life is and how difficult the idea of redemption or recovery is. Now, the book has had, it is quite early days, but you've had some rave reviews, which is great. And I just wonder what's next as a writer or you know, what have you got planned as a follow-up? <laughs> quite hard to follow up something like this. Well, I'd like to carry on writing um, if I can. You know, I always wanted to be a, a writer and I mean, novels are the thing that I love the most. I mean, even when I was waiting to meet drug dealers, I'd sit on a park bench and I'd be reading Jane Austen or Dickens or Kafka or whatever, whoever it was. So literature has always been a huge part of my life and I I hope that I can can write some more. What what kind of writing it'll be, I don't don't know. Um, One of the things that happened while I was writing this book tragically very sadly was that I lost my brother Jonathan who died suddenly and I feel an urge to write about that and to deal with that in some way um so that's kind of what I'm working on at the moment but it it, it may take some time that sounds like quite a tough tough subject but then this was a tough subject as well I think this one might 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 be the toughest one yet Yeah, Yeah. yeah absolutely Matt, it's been lovely talking to you. Is there anything you'd like to mention that we haven't covered? Well, I guess all I would say is that, you know, it's it's lovely to be able to come and have a conversation with you like this um, because for so long, I didn't think I could even sit in a room with somebody who came from a kind of faith background, as I think you do, and... You know, usually if if I did, it would end up in an argument. <laughs> and um, part of what this book records is a kind of journey where life taught me the hard way to have a different view on um, faith as well as all kinds of other things. And in that sense, um, it's you know, this is the story of how I was able to get here today and have a kind of have a conversation a bit like this. So. I'm I'm grateful for that. Well, thank you. It's been a privilege. And I recommend to all our listeners that you buy this book, Original Sins by Matt Rowland Hill. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. 
If you are not yet a subscriber to The Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.